Uh, Ecclesiastes 10 is where we are this morning. The preeminence of truth. Looking at verses 4 through 10. The preeminence of truth. In our final section of the book of Ecclesiastes, which we started in Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon is giving unqualified conclusions about various elements of life. Recall several weeks ago, we spent two weeks learning about joy. What is joy? And then where joy fits into our life. Last week, we were talking about wisdom. What is wisdom? And and how to get wisdom. The source of wisdom being the fear of the Lord. Uh, We appropriate wisdom as we obey God's word. All of those concepts surrounding wisdom. This week, we talk about truth. We live in a culture that has decided that truth, if it is to be known at all, is entirely subjective, entirely open to one's own interpretation, that your truth is your truth, that my truth is is my truth, and when I look at something, I say, well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Now, this, we are not certainly by any means not the first culture, not the first society, and not the first age to believe that truth is subjective. As a matter of fact, you can find this going all the way back, uh, certainly through your Bibles, um, and then down to the very beginning of mankind's uh, foray into rebellion and sin. However, when you study truth, you begin to understand that this view of life where your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and that truth is entirely uh, open to interpretation is above all things essentially nonsensical. And indeed we will learn today that there must be objective truth and even those that deny that such things exist such as truth still must live moment by moment dependent upon the principles of truth. And we're going to use the reality of truth to exhort one another in a very particular frame of mind, one which is essential in the age particularly in which we live. Simply put, we are going to exhort one another not only to love truth, but to rest our loyalty upon truth, to be unwavering in our determination to stand for truth regardless of the consequences. And that is the particular framework within which Solomon is going to speak this morning. You're there in Ecclesiastes 10. Look at verse 4 where the Bible says this. If the spirit of a ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for yielding pacifieth great offenses. The context of the command that we see here in this text is a scenario wherein Solomon says the spirit of a ruler rises up against you. In other words, an authority that is over you is angry at you for something that you have said or for something that you have done. Now, we don't get a whole lot more information about this other than to piece it out through context. Uh, We don't know whether the king is justified or unjustified in his anger. We don't know exactly what you have done. Uh, And this is why our context is so important. Because in light of this scenario, Solomon gives the command. He says, leave not thy place. Now, we could interpret this in one of two ways here. Uh, The first way that we could interpret this is Solomon saying something to the effect of when an authority is set set up, uh, up against you or he's upset at you, Know your place and submit to him, right? Don't leave your place. Know your place. Or we could read it this way. When an authority is upset at you or sets himself against you, don't leave your place. Stand your ground. Don't give way. Now, our context answers the question as to which one this is quite quickly. There, these are two opposite thoughts, right? One says, don't leave your place, know your place, stay under his authority. The other, don't leave your place, stand your ground against his authority. We've already studied Solomon's exhortation to obey one's authority, and so we might be inclined to say, well, this means know your place, stay in line. But that is not what he's saying. Notice the verse. He says, for yielding pacifieth great offenses. So what he is saying here is when an authority rises up against you, Don't leave your place, stand your ground, don't yield. That's what he's saying here. When someone in power is upset against you, don't yield. Now, obviously, we must piece some things together about this context. If Solomon is saying, don't yield when an authority is upset at you, then what you are doing must be right. Right? He's not saying if you've done wrong and an authority calls you out on it, 
hold your ground and be stubborn and obstinate. This is, again, why it's so important that we understand Solomon has already exhorted us several chapters ago to obey earthly authorities. So we know he's not saying, feel free to disobey your earthly authorities. We use the Bible to interpret the Bible. We use context to interpret context. And we understand here he's not saying, don't worry about authority. What he's saying is when your authority is, is doing something wrong and you speak out against it and he's angry at you for it, you hold your ground. Don't give in just because the person wants you to. Don't repent of proper words or deeds for the sake of an angry authority. Don't yield the high ground of truth for the sake of someone who sits on the low ground. And why? Well, the Bible says, Solomon says, because yielding pacifies great offenses. When a person who speaks truth repents because evil people don't like it, all that does is confirm evil people in their, in their evil choices. It makes them feel justified in their wrong thinking or wrong, wrong actions when truth tellers back down. We talked in Sunday school this morning, right there at the end, about Cain and Abel, about Cain killing Abel, right? And Cain killed Abel, we said, not just because, not, not because Abel did anything wrong. Cain killed Abel, not because Abel did anything wrong, but because Abel did, did everything right. And that made Cain upset because Abel stood for the truth and that made Cain look bad, feel bad, feel guilty. He could not speak peaceably against his brother. He killed his brother. We live in a world where people want to silence truth tellers because when truth is told, truth being self-validating, that makes them feel bad because they want to live outside of truth. They want to live in their own little world, their own little bubble of falsehoods. And one of the primary ways they do that is by silencing the truth. Solomon says, when somebody is upset at you, don't leave your place. Stand your ground for truth because if you yield, it will pacify great offenses. It will pacify great offenses. It will make them feel justified. And this does not, by the way, offend the principles we've already espoused related to submission to earthly authorities. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus says there is a truth and that truth needs to be stood for. In John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them through thy truth as Jesus prays to the Father. Thy word is truth. The fact of the matter is truth is is a divine principle. Truth is divine. Now, if I say water is wet, this is a, is a definitive truth, and it has no bearing upon anything spiritual, right? Water is wet. That's definitively true. But it has no bearing on the spiritual. However, while not every truth is a divine principle, may I say it this way? Every truth is consistent with a divine principle. Every truth affirms two things. It recognizes that there is such thing as design, that there is something which is true, which means there is something which is false, which means there is a design, right? And second, it acknowledges God's will. When I acknowledge the difference between truth and error, between true and false, I acknowledge that truth exists and therefore mankind is subject to that design. So first I say, when, when I acknowledge that there is such thing as truth, first, that means that there is something higher than me. There's design. And second, it means that I am sub subject to that design, that I have to live by these principles of truth, that there's nothing that I can do about certain things in life. That truth is truth, whether I believe it or not, because it's truth. And the point is this. Not every battle for a particular statement of truth is a theological battle. If I said two plus two is five, and you argue with me that two plus two is four, we'll fight that battle. And when you win that battle, because obviously you will, because two plus two is obviously four and it's never five, that's not going to have any bearing on theology, right? I could believe two plus two is five without any necessar necessarily any major spiritual implications upon my life. 
However, to stand for truth, even two plus two equals four, while it's not a theological battle, has a spiritual component. Because if I yield ground to that which is false, if I know something to be true and consent to allow error to have its place in my life, I threaten the spiritual principle that there are things which are true and that truth really is worth fighting for because truth is reality. Let me give you an example of this. There are certain things in society over the past hundred years where people have mentioned something to be true. And they've said, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And the church has just consented to let it go. All right, it has no bearing on the Bible. So we're just going to let you believe your truth and I'm going to believe my truth. And while it may not be that any of those particular truths that they, uh, any of those false things that they believe are true, while it may not be that they have bearing on the spiritual, here's what happens. When people are, are allowed to believe that false things are true, then it sets a principle. Let me give you the most obvious. Did you know that there's such thing as a boy and a girl? That boys are boys and girls are girls. That down to our chromosomal levels, XY is boy and XX is girl. If we allow a society to redefine truth, to say that XX can be boy or girl and XY can be boy or girl and it doesn't matter, now, from a feelings perspective, that's okay, right? Whatever. You feel what you want to feel, you do what you want to do. But we've lost something bigger here. Because if we are taking that which is obviously not and making it something which is, because we're, we're lying to ourselves in our minds, well, then what happens when I try to tell somebody God is real and Jesus Christ is the way and the gospel is the truth and if you don't come through the gospel then you can't get to God well they have erected a mindset that says it doesn't matter what I believe it just matters that I believe it and now there's no basis for them to believe in objective truth and if there's no basis for them to believe in objective truth then I have already lost the battle to convince them of the gospel because they don't believe in objective truth so that's what I'm trying to say here. It's not that every battle now, obviously male and female is a theological battle because Genesis 1, 2, 3 tells us God made them male and female. But there are various things in life such as 2 plus 2 equals 5 that you know what? If you want to believe 2 plus 2 equals 5, you can still be a Christian as no bearing. But if you start down the path of believing you can define your own reality even though it's completely different from the reality that God has designed, then you are on dangerous spiritual ground because you are giving up the very stronghold of truth. And if we give up the stronghold of truth, then you and I have nowhere to stand. How can I get up and tell somebody that, that they are on their way to hell if there's no such thing as truth? How can I tell somebody that what they're doing is sinful if there's no such thing as truth? How can I tell somebody how to have joy if there's no such thing as truth? If we are all just a cluster of cells figuring it out, living in some random chance universe that has no design, that has no truth, that truth is only what we make it, then you and I are wasting our time here. We are wasting our time here this morning. We're wasting our time reading a book from a couple thousand years ago and trying to live by it if there's no truth. The principle of truth must be fought for. Truth itself must be precious to us. Because if truth is not precious to us, then we have lost the only thing we have. The thing that we cling to the New Testament calls the church the pillar and the ground of truth. If there is no truth, then the church is useless. And so when we read in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. When we read in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What we see is a principle whereby Jesus drew a line and that line is drawn for truth. It's drawn at truth. There's truth on one side and there's error on the other side. 
And if we yield the ground of truth itself, then that line that Jesus drew becomes muddy. What do we have to stand on if we're willing to let people define their own truth as a society, as a culture, as a church? So Solomon says this in verses five and six, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun as an error which proceedeth from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity and rich and the rich sit in low place. Solomon says, I see an evil on this earth. He says, it's an error which proceeds from the ruler, namely, and, and, and it's, the, it's the ruler that we're talking about in verse four. It's the kind of ruler who doesn't regard truth. It's the kind of ruler who hates truth. And there's an error that proceeds from the ruler that people dignify the foolish words and choices of those in power because they are in power. And those of wisdom and honor and of truth are set aside. It is an evil thing, the Bible tells us, when a person, just because of their position of power or of influence or of authority, when they are allowed to continue in the way of foolishness or of error, it is an evil thing, Solomon says, when truth and honor, and may I put it this way, when reality are ignored or marginalized, because people feel compelled to pander to those who have influence. There's a well-known short tale that's told, inspired by this biblical principle, called The Emperor's New Clothes. This is a short tale about a vain emperor who cares about nothing but wearing and displaying his beautiful clothing. And so one day, two con men come to him, and they promise to make him a beautiful suit that is very special because it is invisible to everybody except for those who are worthy. The, it is invisible to anyone who is unfit or anyone who is uh, uh, hopelessly stupid. If you are not worthy, you don't even see the clothing. Well, the emperor gets excited about this. And so they begin to pretend to weave this clothing together and they show him the clothing and, and he can't see it. The emperor doesn't see it. But here's the thing. Only the unworthy and the hopelessly stupid can't see it, right? So he pretends to see it in order be, to, to, to let everyone feel like he's worthy, like he's, he's a wise man. And so he goes along with their con because he's so vain. And he says he sees the clothing where he doesn't. Well, the emperor's ministers can't see the clothing either. But they're all afraid to tell him that they can't see the clothing because they don't want to be unworthy or hopelessly stupid and they don't want to make the king upset. So they're all telling the king that the clothing is beautiful and he's saying, isn't it beautiful? And no one sees anything, but they're all saying, oh, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, it's fantastic, so that none of them seem vain, stupid, or disappoint the king. So, <laughs> excuse me. So finally, uh, the weavers report the suit to be finished. They, they, they come in, they mime dress him, and the emperor marches the procession before all of his people through the streets of his city. The townsfolk, of course, they don't want to be unworthy. They don't want to be stupid. So they're all, uh, all clapping and preening and saying, oh, how, how grand he looks, and he's walking around with no clothes. And the servants, and nobody will tell him that he's walking around with no clothes because no one wants to be seen as silly, no one wants to be seen as stupid, no one wants to be seen as unworthy, and no one wants to upset the foolish king. Then a child in the crowd, too young to know better, to understand the desirability of keeping up pretense, blurts out, the emperor's wearing no clothes. And this cry is then taken up by others. And the emperor realizes that he's been fooled, that he's wearing no clothes. And his servants, and everyone finally admits that he's not wearing any clothes, but he is still so afraid to yield to this idea that he is worthy and that he's, he's wise that he continues as if nothing is going on. And that's this, this, this little tale, the emperor's new clothes. The point of the tale is this. The people yielded truth for the sake of not looking bad, for the sake of pleasing the foolish king. The king was so proud that he didn't want to tell these con men, I don't see anything, that the servants didn't want to tell the con men, I don't see anything. So the entire kingdom began living in a false reality in order to pander to the king, to his foolishness, to his pride. 
In the end, what was yielded was reality and all are left worse off by the circumstances at hand. Solomon says, this is a great evil. It's a great evil. Error proceedeth from the ruler that folly is set at dignity and that the rich are set in low place. When truth is lost on the altar of the fear of consequences for upholding that truth, when truth falters and everything in life is turned upside down. And Solomon describes this fact in the next verse. He says in verse seven, I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. Now men are men. And as the preamble to the Declaration of Independence tells us, all men are created equal. Indeed, in the sight of God, all men have intrinsic value. They have intrinsic worth. And yet equality of opportunity is not the same as equality of outcome. And it is natural that there are some upon this earth who are in higher positions of honor than others. And in truth, it is not seemly that a man of worth and a man of honor be abased while men of low estate be exalted. It is not natural that the servant should ride upon horses while the princes walk upon earth. Even in our Lord's economy, there are certain men based upon uh, God's design that are worthy of honor more than others. The Bible tells us leaders of government are deserving of honor, Romans chapter 13. The Bible tells us parents are deserving of their children's honor, Ephesians chapter 6. The Bible tells us church elders are deserving of their congregation's honor, 1 Timothy 5.17. The Bible tells us masters are deserving of their servants' honor. 1 Timothy 6, verse 1. God has laid down a principle of design which regards men by nature of their position in this life as of greater honor materially, not necessarily spiritually, but materially. In the kingdom of heaven, God has mentioned that some people will have more honor than others. 2 Timothy 2, verses 19 to 29. And so Solomon is looking at a situation where men who are are supposed to be men of honor who have uh, who are men of dignity are walking on the ground as servants and that the servants are riding on horses it is a twisting of societal design it is a confusion of design and that's the point here solomon says there's a particular design and remember we're talking about truth and solomon says it's not a good thing when the truths of society, when the design of society is confused. Because when you do that, then everything, then reality becomes confused. Solomon appeals to the reality of truth and to God's design in the next two verses. He says this in verses eight and nine. He says, he that diggeth a pit shall fall into it. And whoso breaketh an hedge, a serpent shall bite him. Whoso removeth stones shall be hurt therewith. And he that cleaveth wood shall be endangered thereby. Uh, Solomon gives the same proverb here that we can read in Proverbs twenty six twenty seven, which says this. Whoso diggeth a pit shall fall therein. And he that rolleth a stone, it will be returned upon him. The idea of these various parables is this, that truth is preeminent, that a man who digs a pit falls into that pit, that the man who breaks the hedge will have a snake bite him, that the man who removes the stone will have it roll back upon him, that the man who cleaves the wood is the man who is in danger. Now, these proverbs are proverbial. They're not promises. They're not absolutes. In other words, not every man who digs a pit for another man to fall in will fall in himself. But here's what we do know. First, by digging the pit, the man is creating a source of evil. And by creating the source of evil, there's always an opportunity for him to be overcome by that evil. And second, whether or not that man falls into the pit or the man whom the man dug the pit for falls into the pit, God still sees. God still sees. When men put themselves into this world of evil, they place themselves into the, uh, excuse me, when men put evil into this world, they run the risk of placing themselves in the path of that evil. And even if they never fall into the pit that they dig, even if the stone never rolls back upon them explicitly, the almighty God who sees and knows, sees that breach of truth in his design and the day of reckoning will come. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but in the end, God's design holds up. There's no cheating the system. There is truth, whether we acknowledge it or not. And so Solomon continues in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, he says this, if the iron be blunt 
and he do not wet the edge, that means sharpen it, then must he put to more strength, but wisdom is profitable to direct. It stands to reckon that if something is designed to work a certain way, it will operate best when it fulfills that design, right? When I was um, uh, putting in, I, I, I may have uh, mentioned this before. Uh, it strikes me that I may have used this illustration before, but we'll use it again. When I was putting in my flooring into my house uh, several years ago, when we were putting our flooring in, it was, a, it's a, it was like a tongue and groove flooring. And uh, as we were putting it in, uh, we found that it was not going in very easily. And as we We'd gotten a few rows done. It had not been going in easily. We stopped at some point and we said, there's got to be something wrong here. There's no way that they could have designed the product to go in this hard. And so we started, we looked at the instructions, we, we reevaluated the situation, and we realized that we were doing it backwards. We were supposed to be going from left to right, and we were going from right to left, and that was causing a problem with getting the tongue and the groove in and, and such. We were going backwards. We were installing it backwards. So what did we do? We pulled it up. We started it the other way. We did it the way it was supposed to go, and everything fell into place nice and easy. Tongue slipped into groove. When we aligned ourselves with the design, the work became much easier. Now, we could have done the entire floor backwards. It was working. The tongue and the groove were eventually getting in. Everything was kind of working. It was just a whole lot more work than we thought it was supposed to be. And it sure made life easier when we aligned ourselves with the design. The same can be said about this world. This is the picture Solomon is giving here. He says, if an iron is blunt, if you've got a dull knife, you can still cut, but it's going to be a lot harder. Now we say don't cut with a dull blade. Why? Because if you're cutting with a dull blade, you're having to press harder to get it to cut, right? And when you press harder, there's a higher likelihood that you're going to slip and you're going to cut yourself. Or you're going to take off a finger or whatever because you're having to press so hard. If you've ever used a chainsaw that's dull and then you've sharpened the blade and then you've used it again, it's amazing how much easier it is to use a chainsaw with a sharp blade. It's not that you can't cut a tree down with a dull chainsaw blade. It's not that you can't cut with a dull knife. It's that when you sharpen the edge, it becomes so much easier. You can have a dull blade and get the work done, but it's going to be much harder. And this is, this is the point. This is really the whole point of Ecclesiastes, is it not? Solomon's saying, you have the choice on how to live life. You can do it man's way or you can do it God's way. You can do it the way that your flesh and your heart think is best or you can do it the way God thinks is best. And both of them might get you through this life, but one way is a whole lot easier than the other. And that's God's way. Why? Because God's the designer, right? He knows how it's supposed to be done. We'll finish our exposition with verse 11. He says, Surely the serpent will bite without enchantment, and a babbler is no better. Solomon's final proverb relates to snake charming. Snake charming is a practice still done in some cultures today where they supposedly hypnotize a snake through the playing of an instrument called a pungi. And they move that instrument around and they play a melody and that snake follows the instrument as, uh, as the, the charmer is playing and then they say that the snake is charmed. Now, there are two very different translations between a King James version of the Bible and other modern translations. Uh, both of those translations have the same Hebrew text undergirding it, so it's not an issue of the Hebrew. The Hebrew is the same, but there are two very different thoughts depending on, on which translation you would look into. I'm actually going to give you both of them this morning to give you a little bit of, a, of an idea of, of um, both thoughts. The King James compares the serpent who is not enchanted to the man who lacks control over his words, to the man who is saying things that are not right, who, who, who breaches reality, saying that just as a snake, if not controlled, will destroy, the serpent will bite if not enchanted, so too a babbler is no better. A babbler is no better than that. Uh, a babbler will destroy as well if he's not under control. A man with a loose tongue, a man who, who is not willing to speak truth or who speaks outside of truth will destroy also. Now, the ESV translation says it this way. 
If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The idea of this one is that you don't need a charmer anymore if the serpent's already bitten you, right? The damage has already been done. Both of these are valid translations of the Hebrew text. If we regard the modern translation, the, the, what I read out of the, the English Standard Version, Solomon is connecting this proverb to the context of verse 10, that a blunt instrument means more work, wisdom is profitable to direct a man's path, so that they aren't playing the dangerous game of attempting to charm a dangerous snake. In this translation, Solomon would be likening those who disregard design as snake charmers. That maybe it seems like everything is under control as you're walking according to your own way, as you're living outside of absolute truth. You're walking your own way, you're doing it, and you feel like everything's in control, you're charming that snake. But you know what? You're playing with fire. You're digging the pit that you might just fall into. You're rolling the stone that might just roll back on you. You're far more likely to get hurt. And if the serpent bites before you can charm it in any given circumstance, then you're out of luck. You don't need the charmer anymore because the serpent's already bit you. That's the idea of more modern translations. In our King James, it says, Surely the serpent will bite without enchantment, and a babbler is no better. As we mentioned, the King James compares the serpent who is not enchanted to the man who lacks control over his words, saying, just as a snake, if not controlled, will destroy, so to a man's words, if not controlled, will destroy also. And this also fits very well into the context, not just of verse 10, but really of our whole passage today, that if the serpent is not controlled, he will be more likely to bite the man, just as the man with the blunt blade is going to require more effort to cut, just like the man who digs a pit, man who rolls the stone may fall back into it. In just that same way, the man who speaks outside of truth, the man who lacks control over his own words is no better. He will cause damage. Going back in our context to the authority, pandering to the lying words, pandering to the lying thoughts, pandering to the, 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 the anger of the authority against you and yielding truth will destroy. So both translations are valid and have valid interpretations. Normally that doesn't happen. Normally when I look at both, um, I, have, I have 99 times out of 100 felt as though the King James translators uh, have a superior translation. And this one I looked at both and said, both of them are right. Neither one offends the Hebrew. The Hebrew is the same in both. Um, so I gave you both. Both ideas there. And that leaves us to apply this morning. I've got several points, four points to give you as we apply our text. Point number one, loyalty to truth is loyalty to God. Loyalty to truth is loyalty to God. We began our time together understanding that God is truth. That which is true in every area of life is rooted in God's design, that God hates lies. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren." We see both a lying tongue and a false witness in this list. Each a form of misrepresenting the truth. Folks, God hates lies. And God hates lies because it is contrary to his character. It's contrary to his design. But when we take time to think about what a lie is, a misrepresentation of the truth, I think you can come to the place where you understand just how ugly lying is. Lies are, are, are difficult because they represent themselves as real when they are not. They represent something that is not true as true. And there's nothing more frustrating than to think you're dealing in reality when you aren't. Imagine you go to the store with a $100 bill and you're going to buy groceries and you give that $100 bill to the, the, to, to the person at the cash register and they look at it and they say, this is a counterfeit $100 bill. I'm sorry, it cannot be used here. You have been lied to. And it has stripped from you the ability to operate in the way that you expected. Parents, perhaps 
you've been in this situation before where a couple of your children come up and one of them is crying and they're hurt and you're trying to figure out what happened so that you can know how they got hurt. Did they fall off of something? Did they fall down from something? Did they bend something? Did they, did, did, did they twist something? And yet all of, your, all of their siblings are saying a different story because somebody was doing something foolish and no one wants to get in trouble. And you're not even worried about who's in trouble at this point. You're just trying to get to the truth so that you can help the child who's hurt. But you can't get to the truth because they're all saying something different and they're lying to you. And it's so frustrating because you just want to live in this world of reality so that you can take care of the situation that needs to be taken care of. Truth is so important and lies are so, may I just use the word ugly. Reality is a, not a concept rooted in what we want or what we think it's, or what we perceive. Reality is a concept rooted in what is true. And if you and I are looking at these chairs and I say these chairs are purple and you say these chairs are brown, well, I might be colorblind or I don't know why I'd call these chairs purple, but you know what? It doesn't change the fact that they're brown. Reality is rooted in truth. Reality is not rooted in perception. And this is why untruth is so vile because it distorts reality. Wisdom tells us how to act or react based upon reality, right? We learned about that last week. Wisdom is truth applied. It is when I take the reality of the world that I live in and I act according to truth. But if I don't know what is real, I can't even apply wisdom. To this end, lies are a great evil because they deprive us of reality. And so they deprive us of the benefits of wisdom. Solomon said in verse 4, the spirit of a ruler, if the spirit of a ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place for yielding pacifieth great offenses. When a person of authority rises up against truth, we need to hold our ground. We need to stay loyal to the truth because if you yield, you're doing more harm than good. You are validating a person to live outside of reality and in doing so, you run the risk of letting them drag you into their make-believe world. It is not uncommon for mankind to attempt to live in a make-believe world to validate our own feelings and desires, is it? My oldest girls went through a phase like this a little while ago where they were always sick. Every day, you wake up in the morning, how did you sleep? Well, this hurts, that hurts, that hurts, this hurts, this hurts, I have this, I've got that, my stomach, my head, my legs, my everything, right? And going to bed, they, they, would, they would get out of bed and they'd say, I, I, I need medicine or I need this because this hurts and that hurts and that hurts and this hurts and this hurts. And, you know, there's a part of you that says, oh, how cute. Except that, as a parent, when my child is unwell, I want to help them feel better. And if everything hurts all the time, then I can't know what's actually wrong. It's extremely frustrating because I can't help them because they're not living in the same reality I'm living in. And I'm trying to deal with reality and, and, and they're not living in that reality. Now that's an example with children. We could talk about the, the, the other uh, story, the boy who cries wolf, right? We could talk about all these things. But it happens in adults as well. And let's just dig down to that this morning. Husband, how can your wife trust you if you're not telling her the truth? Your wife is asked to submit to you. And every husband in here knows that that's not an easy thing to ask a wife to do. How much harder do we make it if we don't tell her the truth? God has given her a tough task, which is to place herself under you. How can she do that properly if you're lying to her? Wife, your husband has been called to love you, to pour himself into you, to care for you, to take care of you, to, to provide for you. How can he do that if he can't trust you? If you're lying to him. How can he lead you as he's called to lead you if you won't tell him the truth? If you, if you won't tell him the truth about what happened today, how can he make the decisions he needs to make to lead his family? If we misrepresent reality, how can we expect others to help us, to guide us, to provide for us, to protect us, to submit to us, to obey us?
But this verse takes it a step farther. Verse four, it doesn't just tell us to love truth. It calls for us to stand our ground for the truth, even in the face of the pressure to yield for the sake of expedience or emotion or whatever it might be. Solomon says, even if a leader rises up against you and pressures you to yield truth, don't do it. Folks, truth does not just need to be a benefit to us. Truth needs to be the, the ground upon which we stand. In every circumstance, lies ought to be abhorrent to you. Even the little ones. Even the, hey, what'd you do today? Hey, what'd you have for lunch? Some people have become very comfortable just making things up. Just because, for whatever reason. Folks, we need to become sensitive to, to truth. Sensitive to untruth. Truth needs to become something that we love that we grasp, that we cling to in every area of our lives, whether it's husband, wife, whether it's society, whether it's friends, whether it's church. How can your pastor help you if you don't tell him the truth? God has called me to be the shepherd, the under shepherd under Christ. How can I help you if you're lying to me? Children, how can your parents help you You say, I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm going to lie to my parents. How can they help you become what you need to be for Christ if you're lying to them? Your parents don't want to destroy you. Now, there might be consequences for wrongdoing, but look, your parents love you. How can they help you become the young men and women that you need to be if you don't tell them the truth? We need to tell the truth. We've seen it many times before in society. Solomon says, yielding will will pacify great offenses. Have you ever listened to somebody, and it happens all the time now in the news, whether it's a celebrity or whether it's a sports figure, and they say something that is unequivocally true. They say something absolutely true, and you say, wow, a celebrity saying something that's actually true, or a sports person saying something that's actually true, and and then what's the next thing that goes through my mind? They'll, 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 They'll be apologizing in the next 24 hours for that, right? And you really hope it doesn't happen because what they said is reality. It's just true. It's obvious. It's not even political. It's just obvious, right? But what happens? 24 hours later, they're up saying, I shouldn't have said that. I hurt people's feelings. Please forgive me. What are they doing? They're yielding to lies to pacify offenses. Validating a fake world validating people's separation from reality. And look, folks, it does no one any favors. Let me get more spiritual this morning. Most people who have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior are living in a false existence. They believe that their works will get them to heaven. They believe that their religion will get them to heaven. They believe that there is no heaven. They believe that they have no accountability. When we live in such a way that we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Savior as the exclusive means of heaven, we're going to accept, uh, we're going to upset people, right? It's going to happen because we're bigots and we're, we're narrow-minded and we're fill in the blank because we believe that there's only one way to heaven. Well, we believe that because that's what the Bible says. And when we upset people because of truth, we have two options. We can either soften the truth or we can stand on the truth. Solomon says, leave not thy place. Stand for truth. Well, here's the thing. If we believe that truth is reality and that truth is our link to reality, then every time that we soften the truth so as not to offend, what are we doing? We are allowing a person to live in a fake world so that we don't offend them. The picture that we often give is we are allowing a person to walk toward a cliff and they're headed toward that cliff and because we don't want them to be upset at us, we're not going to tell them that they're about to fall over a cliff. The bus is hurtling toward them and because we don't want them to be upset at us, we're not going to push them out of the way. There's something nonsensical in that, isn't there? If we believe this is true, 
And we believe that those who are not living according to this book are maybe out of ignorance, maybe just because of what, not necessarily always for evil purposes, but if we believe that the people who are out living outside of this book are indeed living outside of the truth, reality, then we do no one any favors to pander them in their misconceptions. And the same is true for us as believers. If I know that you are doing something wrong as a believer and I choose not to tell you because I want to maintain that relationship because I don't want to upset you, what am I doing but allowing you to live in a false existence for the sake of me not rustling feathers? That's not love. It's not love for me to let you live in a false truth, in a false reality, just so that you don't get upset at me, just so that I don't rustle some, ruffle some feathers. And in reality, whether it's to the unbeliever or to the believer, when we allow people to live unhindered in a false reality, it's destructive, is it not? We're pacifying great offenses. Folks, we need to love truth. We need to love truth. Loyalty to truth is loyalty to God. I'm going to move on. I'm skipping some stuff this morning. Secondly, loyalty to truth stems the tide of evil and folly. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. God declares woes against those who would distort truth and reality and turn it on its head. The Bible would further say in Psalm 119, verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. The way of a man is cleansed by truth, by the presence of truth. This is why when men desire to do evil, they do their best to remove influence of truth from their way. Sin loves company. The presence of truth causes those who love darkness to recoil. Thus, the only thing stemming from the tide, uh, stemming the tide of absolute evil, of absolute violence and wickedness from overcoming this world is those who live, love, and teach the truth. And it is only loyalty to God's design and God's truth in whatever form it takes in society which stems the tide of evil and folly. It is only the degree to which we who have accepted God's truth, live God's truth that keeps evil at bay. And make no mistake, that which is true is of God. Truth is the only hope we have for righteousness. So we need to be loyal to truth. Third, first, loyalty to truth is loyalty to God. Second, loyalty to truth stems the tide of evil and folly. Third, loyalty to truth provides for a properly adjusted perspective on this life. Psalm 119 verse 30 says, The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. God's word introduces the world as it truly exists. In every aspect of life, you will always find multiple perspectives. People who see the same evidence but interpret things differently, whether you're talking politics, whether you're talking science, whether you're talking ideology, philosophy, sports, religion, people will always look at the same stuff and see things differently. And you know, that's okay in one sense. But the issue becomes much larger larger when we go beyond just personal experiences and ideas and get to the root of the matter, the word of God. If I don't believe in God, I see every aspect of humanity differently than if I do believe in God. If I believe in Allah, I see every aspect of humanity differently than if I believe in Jehovah and Jesus Christ. This is why two people can look at one issue and so strongly disagree with each other and actually to the extent where they are convinced that if a person doesn't agree with them, they're evil, right? It comes entirely... It comes from seeing things through entirely different lenses, what we would call our worldview. And what the Bible tells us is that when a person looks at the world through the lenses of the word of God, they are seeing the world as it truly exists. And when you are not looking through the lenses of the word of God, you are not seeing the world as it truly exists. Why? Because God created it. 
And if God created it, then God is the one that can tell us how it truly exists. So when Solomon says in verse 10 that the blunt iron means more strength must be brought to bear, he's telling us that we, that those who reject the wisdom of the truth of God are going to have a harder time in this world finding lasting satisfaction because the design of God will be elusive to us. As believers, it is not uncommon even to allow the world around us, our experiences, our feelings, our desires to taint our understanding of biblical truth. We know what the Bible says, but as we look at life, we think, well, what God wants from me is impossible. What God says may have been good for Bible times, but not for the world we live in. God's design is too old, too outdated, too constrained, as if somehow God did not anticipate the year 2017 when he had the Bible written. Or as if for the first time in history, culture has been inherently opposed to God's word, and so this is the first time we've come across this stuff. The fact of the matter is, to whatever degree we have chosen some other priority other than the truths of God's word, to that degree we have a tainted view of life. We are, we are, we are tainted in our view of reality. And this means we need to search our hearts and make sure that we are loyal to truth. Because truth, loyalty to truth is loyalty to God. Because loyalty to truth stems the tide of evil and folly because loyalty to truth is what will provide for us a proper perspective on life. One more point as we close today. Fourth and finally, man can find lasting satisfaction. And I'm going to read you a portion of scripture, 16 verses from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is all about the Bible and I'm going to let this speak for itself as we close this morning. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 25, the psalmist writes this in Dalit. My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. I have declared my ways and thou hurtst me. Teach me thy statutes. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. So shall I talk of thy wondrous works. My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according unto thy word. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me thy law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before thee. I have stuck unto thy testimonies. O Lord, put me not to shame. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the paths of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline mine heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. Establish thy word unto thy servant, who is devoted to thy fear." Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. Behold, I have longed for thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Here's a man writing who says, Lord, I love truth and I am going to pursue truth because in truth is reality. Folks, I feel as though I wandered a little bit this morning. I hope that the Holy Spirit of God is able to take the Word of God and apply it to your, your hearts in a meaningful way. But, but if you don't bring anything else from this, just, just get this. Truth is so important. The preeminence of truth is that truth is reality. There is truth. There is such thing as truth. And we need to be a people above all people on this earth that are loyal to it, that love it that cleave to it. It is our hope. It is our only hope. So let's cleave to truth this morning.